Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin, and for this intro, for this episode, it's just me because I don't want to take up any time. I want to get right into the content because what we're doing today is we are going to share you some snippets from our recent goal conference. As a lot of you know, last month we held our first ever virtual goal conference, and the great thing about that is all that content was recorded and is now available to our members. So if you're a member of GAA, check out the link in our show notes where you can go on and watch all the recordings from the Gold Conference. Every single session is available to you. And if you're not a member, you should also check out the link in our show notes so you can become a member and get access to all of the content from this amazing virtual conference that we put on. So what we're doing today, we're going to give you a couple snippets of some of the opening remarks and uh, from a couple of the panels so you can kind of get a taste of what this goal conference was like. And then if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. Find us on social at aquademiapod, and we'll help you get connected so you can get all of this content. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Enjoy these little snippets of the goal conference. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. I'd like to officially welcome you to Gold 2020 and introduce you to GAA Chief Executive Officer, Wally Stevens, who is giving the opening address. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2020 edition of Goal. This year, like any other year, we'll share important updates on issues pertaining to aquaculture and to all of seafood, whether it's farmed or wild caught. As always, we endeavor to bring you the most relevant information on global aquaculture supply, demand, and innovations. By taking stock each year in this way, we're doing our part to ensure that the industry grows responsibly. We were very much looking forward to Goal 2020 being in Tokyo. We'll just have to wait one year to enjoy all that is Tokyo and Japan. So we're presenting this year's event virtually. Folks, this isn't your typical conference. But then again, 2020 isn't your typical year. We're doing our best to recreate that live, in-person experience. And I think you'll like what you see. Our ongoing theme for Goal is connect, collaborate, commit. While doing all of this online certainly challenges the connect part of the equation, we can still work together and set common goals for our industry. Operating remotely from our homes, as many of us have had to do for the past six months plus, is what you might call the new normal. It's not the normal any of us truly wants, but to date, the results aren't bad. But today, I would like to share some thoughts on what comes after the new normal. I call it the next normal. For us at GAA, the next normal will be delivered by an organization that advocates and demonstrates responsible practices for all seafood, whether it's farmed or wild caught. The Global Aquaculture Alliance will soon transition to the Global Seafood Alliance, or GSA, so that we can provide the world-class environmental, social, animal welfare, and food safety assurances for wild-caught seafood, just as we do with best aquaculture practices today. This transition is already underway. We've recently added a fishing vessel standard to our suite of world-class certification standards to address worker safety and responsible practices at sea. 
When linked with our seafood processing standard, it completes a solid chain from fisheries through vessels and processes to the marketplace. We'll call this program Best Fishery Practices, or BFP, and will convey the same assurances that BAP does today. GAA, its members in this conference, have long been described as a home of industry thought leaders. We identify the challenges facing the growth of aquaculture and work to find solutions. Collectively, we have been in the vanguard with our advocacy work, education programs, and the world's most comprehensive certification program for aquaculture. But there is so much more to be done. For us, most of our thoughts are focused on improving the lives of women and men engaged in farming and harvesting seafood. Yes, we think of the increasing role of technology, of finance, the impacts of climate change, and other environmental concerns, all of which impact our marine and freshwater environments. At our core, though, we know that it will require educated, happy, productive, well-regarded women and men to provide and implement solutions to these issues. So what do we at GAA care about? We care about the best possible working conditions for women and men as addressed in our best aquaculture practices and our recently adopted responsible fishing vessel standard. We care about understanding mechanisms such as work of voice to provide a means for all workers to openly and safely address issues they encounter while working. We care about education and training to carry out this work responsibly and safely and encouraging workers to become leaders. We care about professional development education and certificates to students as we do for production facilities today. And finally, we care about using technology to conduct most third-party audits remotely and at lower cost. President Theodore Roosevelt famously said, the credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends themselves in a worthy cause, who at best, if successful, knows the high achievement, and if fails, at least fails daring greatly. That is my vision for myself, my associates, and our aspiration for each of you to always be in the arena. I encourage you to stay in our arena for the next few days as we present to you Goal 2020 virtually. Thank you again for joining us this week. Take care of yourselves and each other. Welcome everyone to session three, which is entitled Health Check, Updates on Shrimp Disease Management and Thin Fish Welfare. And we're really lucky to have five fantastic experts to work with us today. Uh, Robbins McIntosh is an executive vice president with the CP Group. Ji Huang is the director general, general of the Network of Aquaculture Centers of Asia Pacific. Lok Tran is the founder of the Shrimp Vet Group in Vietnam. And Rolando Ibarra is a, a senior fellow with Intesal, and he's working now with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program. And Christine Quinn is a director of the Nautilus Collaboration Group in Australia, and she's a veterinarian, experienced with finfish and with shrimp. Why don't we begin with uh, Christine? And uh, Christine, you've prepared some animal welfare modules for the Global Aquaculture Alliance, educational modules to help walk farmers through the, the principles and the processes of animal welfare. And so let me ask you, 
Uh, you've reviewed the various methods for humane slaughter of fish. Uh, have you found that one particular method is more humane than others? And if there is one like that, does it apply to all thin fish species or are there differences? So I think in short, um, I can say that there's not enough evidence to say that there's one method that is superior to all in finfish, uh, in all species of, species of finfish. Now, um, there are too many gaps in our knowledge about the efficacy of particular stunning methods um, and humane slaughter methods uh, in uh, various finfish species, uh, such as pangasius, catfish, and tilapia. Um, but Global Aquaculture Alliance um, is uh, funding some of this research to fill in the gaps, uh, which is really promising, um, uh, through uh, the OP grant. Um, but um, I can say that it is generally agreed that animals should be rendered insensible prior to slaughter to improve welfare outcomes and um, subsequently flesh quality. Um, and I'm, that is reflected in um, the best aquaculture practices standard. Super, super. Yes, and with OP, you're referring to the Open Philanthropy Fund, which we're very yeah. grateful to have received. Um, let's talk about stocking density. Uh, there's a tendency to want to generalize that we should use one stocking density across the board for a particular species. In the case of salmon, what would you say about stocking density limits for salmon in net pens versus uh, recirculating aquaculture systems? Uh, should they be set at the same levels or does it make sense to use different levels? So this is a very, uh, I guess, interesting debate because uh, it's been something that um, has been uh, spoken about for a number of years across uh, several welfare groups and, and even in industry um, when setting welfare guidelines. Um, and I think, um, in short, it's it's quite different between net pens and research and flow through. Um, mainly because of the different uh, management styles um, for each system. Now, the maximum stocking densities really should be set in accordance to the site. Um, and in the case, of, for the case of net pen farming, um, so hydrodynamics, currents, um, uh, benthos, um, and in the case of recirculation systems, it should be set according to their wastewater treatment capabilities. Because in the end, uh, it's dependent on the um, culture environment. So if you're able to maintain an optimal culture environment, um, then you should be able to have uh, higher stocking densities. When I say higher, um, it needs to be an educated um, uh, set limit based on experience of working the site um, and data. So when you're looking at evidence, you can look at population-based indicators. Um, these uh, data points are things such as mortality rate, disease incidence, biological FCR, economical FCR. And the farmer should be able to set their maximum densities, keeping these things in mind and also having a revision process at the end of each production cycle to say, um, you know, have these uh, particular indicators uh, uh, given me the confidence that um, I have promoted um, uh, responsible and good welfare. 
Now, you can also look at fish-based indicators. Um, and this is something that they do pretty much on a monthly basis, weekly basis, daily basis. Um, you need to ensure that densities are appropriate. Um, and you take into account things like the prevalence of skin lesions, um, prevalence of short opercular, um, prevalence of um, uh, uh, fin lesions, which could be um, uh, items of, or um, indicators observed um, due to higher aggression levels. Um, so, you know, in, in short, um, there's not really a, a clear-cut boundary. However, um, the most important thing for farmers is to develop and implement a system that can review these welfare indicators um, on a regular basis while they're farming and at the end of the production cycle to see if they need to change practices um, or planning. That makes good sense, Christine. I'd like to ask you one other one, which is kind of a, a sensitive one. It's mm -hmm. um, it's regarding the use of antibiotics. You know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the marketplace, there's a, a big reaction against use of antibiotics, but you, being a vet, probably feel that antibiotics are an important tool. So how, yeah. do, you, how do you justify the use of antibiotics from an animal welfare point of view? So I think that antibiotics has been a, a really controversial topic in the aquaculture industry, as you know. Um, and there, I think there are two aspects that directly apply to welfare. So the first is if there is a disease that you are able to treat with antibiotics and there are adverse um, welfare uh, conditions or adverse welfare effects of that disease, um, then it is uh, a ethical responsibility um, for you to treat. Um, so uh, in the instance where, let's say, for example, you have a um, systemic bacterial disease that can be treated using an antibiotic that you know is sensitive, um, then it is in the animal's best interest uh, that you are able to treat. Um, the main thing is uh, we need to practice prudent use of antibiotics. Um, so it is a really important tool but it can't be abused. So um, there is the need for effective treatments and practicing prudent um, use of antibiotics means that you have a, a clear cut diagnosis. You are able to do culture and sensitivity to make sure that the antibiotic work um, on the disease. Um, and you need to make sure that you have a system to monitor the um, effectiveness of the antibiotic treatment. So, you know, if there are any adverse effects, if the antibiotic treatment is not effective, then these are things that need to be in a review process. Um, we can't have a significant number of ineffective treatments because that is what leads to um, uh, increased rate of the development of antimicrobial resistance. Um, we need to make sure that the dosage rate and the antibiotic selected and the duration is suitable for the disease that we're looking at treating. So it's important to note that um, the OIE has guidelines on appropriate use of antimicrobials and we should be aware and, of them and we should also follow them. Yes, okay. Yes, it's a sensible use and animal welfare is a very important factor to consider. Got it, yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue into the next discussion uh, with Rolando Ibarra, the senior fellow on aquaculture sustainability with the Monterey Bay Aquarium and also with Intesal. 
So, Rolando, I wonder if you could brief us on the situation in Chile with SRS, the salmon rickettsial syndrome, and the challenges it presents uh, with regard to antibiotic use and, and what's being done there. Uh, thank you, um, George. It was a very good link with the last question that you uh, made with Christine. So, SRS is like our COVID-19. You know, it's spread by social distances. Uh, even though you can uh, uh, use a face mask, mask uh, if you don't have a vaccine, very good vaccine, is is di very difficult to control. So, as you know, uh, SRS is a, an endemic disease in Chile and expands more or less 90% of the use of antibiotic. Uh, therefore, control and prevention measures uh, uh, are very necessary to advance in the sustainable management of the disease. We have a some we made some progress in control, and this is reflected by the 30% uh, of the decrease in the antibiotic consumption. Uh, but there are some still um, um, challenges to, to that, that we need to solve. Uh, so I want to put like a four pillars or four big challenges that we need to increase, uh, despite that we have a huge advances in the last five or six years because we invest in science, we invest in technology, uh, also, we have a new we have a new vaccines in, in the in the in the system. It's it's not enough to control uh, uh, this endemic disease. So, the first one I think is like uh, the increase the collaboration between companies, and also more important is within within companies. So many of the times the instruction is go directly to the technical managers to the veterinarian, but an important component of, of the uh, disease control is the is the site manager is the the, the worker so so um, for we need some more coordination uh, between uh, the companies and also uh, 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 in, in within the company so uh, we have a very good program for the coordination to sea lice management or for the sea lice control and also for us it was very successful for the I think for SRS is uh, is we, we, we have a we need a more and more effort to to have a, like a coordinated management of the disease. The second one is like I have a more more legislation. Despite that we have a legislation about very good for control uh, diseases, uh, we need to or uh, probably we need to place the correct incentive for effectiveness and control. The legislation should be like an orchestra, you know, it's including a, a coordination between different programs, food safety, environmental, and sanitation. Sometimes the incentive is not very well uh, put in the legislation. The other one is the science. The science, uh, during the last four years, the industry and the state invested um, more or less $4 million uh, for, for to know the basis of the SRS. So uh, at the, uh, in the past, we have a many, many solutions, but without any uh, scientific base. So uh, right now we have very strong uh, science-based uh, uh, background to start to build a pre-competitive and pre-competitive uh, solution for research. So uh, that I think this is like a, 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 the, the one of the most important. And um, and the last one is uh, is the productive. Uh, we. Uh, in, in the aquaculture, at least in, in, in the salmon industry, we put many, many efforts in the in the pathogen, you know, like uh, the the chemistry, the molecular aspect, uh, but we forgot about the productive, about the, the farm. So we must optimize the, the neighborhood system. And in Chile, you know, we use this, this like a zoning system. It is good, 
but we need to improve, the, improve them uh, to avoid the concentration of fish in a, in a certain period. Increase the distance between the sites, reduce the length of the cycle in salt water, and probably increase the fish, fish uh, welfare bus as Christine uh, said uh, in the uh, interven intervention before. The control of the pathogen is not a recipe. Each site, each site is unique. We, we need to do some action and work uh, together with, with, our, with our neighbor. Uh, as I said in the beginning, we could compare ourselves with uh, COVID-19. Despite we have the facing mask, the social distance, it is difficult to control if we don't have very effective vaccines. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And I, I think that the salmon industry leads the world in these kinds of uh, zone management approaches, you know, collaboration, working together, all the farms stock at the same time, they uh, within a zone, they fallow at the same time. I wonder if some of these techniques could be applied to other species groups where disease is a big problem. Have you, have you considered uh, how the the methods used in salmon farming might be applied, for example, to shrimp farming? Uh, it's a very good question, and, and I, I need to say yes, absolutely, but with careful. Uh, the design of a sanitary zone, the point of the, what you want to control, you know, as, it's like if you want to control a bacterial disease, you need to design this kind of zone. If you want to control a virus disease or in trim, you need to, like, a customized. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a recipe. In the case of the Chilean salmon, mm -hmm. there was a great success for the control of the of the wild disease like AISA. You know, we, we suffered uh, the, one of the most important uh, epidemic disease 10 years ago. But this design is have a relative success for the control of other diseases like AISA or, or even Silase, which are a bacterial viral disease. Um, but in aquaculture, there is a different in technological resource and technological solution, cycle, uh, susceptibility, and so on. So we can, it's difficult to compare salmon with shrimp, but we can adapt some kind of technology or some knowledge that we have before. But there is a one, in my personal experience, that is very cheap and effective and can be implemented for more and less easily. It is a cooperation. And in aquaculture, in aquaculture if you take care of of your neighbor, probably you have also taken take care for yourself. So cooperation and trust are the basis of the improvement system in the sun at the sun level. Data collection also allow make some possible tracking of the problem. So if you don't take uh, data or you don't uh, have a, like a monitoring uh, system, uh, it's very difficult to improve in, in, in the future. Also the technical and productive cooperation with the public entity is very important. So uh, the, 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 the public of the regulators that have very a key uh, aspect here, uh, not always uh, we need to involve with the, with the public entity. There are some private initiative and there are some public, uh, private initiative and there are public or other public or, or, or more from the regulator. But in the case of the zoning, uh, it's, it's, it's best that you, or the better that you can Take time to design very good design of the of, of the objective of the goal of the for the, that you want to control, uh, and also uh, this avoid like uh, to fix the problem in ten more years. So we have some some problem. It's not a problem real, but we we know that the, this model of the of the of the neighborhood of the some managed 
is, is the trend is trying to concentrate in some particular season. And probably this season is more summertime when we have a more uh, uh, biggest outbreaks. Uh, we have 10 years of mandatory zoning with successful and mistake, but at the end of the day, uh, this system allows us to control one of the most important epidemics that uh, has been registered in aquaculture. And by the way, the experience that we, we, we they suffered, this bad experience with the, the, this uh, ISA, uh, ISA, ISA uh, crisis, is use, very useful right now uh, to control the and to prevent the dispersion of COVID-19 in other southern regions. So we use this knowledge about the sign, the dispersion, the preventive measure inside the, mm -hmm. the site, even in, in the processing plant to prevent the dispersion of, of the disease. Yeah, I think somehow I think that those of us in the aquaculture world who've been, been exposed to diseases can relate very much to COVID-19 and the control measures that are needed. I think it's uh, almost second nature to us. Well, thank you, Rolando. Uh, thank you to you. I think zone management is really is important and we have to learn to apply it more in other sectors beyond salmon. And, um, and it does involve both the private level, the farms, as well as the public, the government. Um, let me jump over to Dr. Huang. Ji uh, uh, Huang, the Director General, General of the Network of Aquaculture Centers of Asia Pacific and a brilliant pathologist who earlier presented um, a, a great presentation on Decapod Iridescent Virus 1, DIV1. And so we have a few questions for you, Dr. Wong. Uh, first of all, can you comment on whether DIV1 is something we can be, or we should be concerned about? Is it, is it increasing in severity or uh, geographic range, or is it uh, becoming less of a problem? What do you think about DIV1? Okay, uh, based on uh, the data uh, from uh, the National Target Surveillance Program from uh, uh, 2017 and uh, 2019 in China, the positive rates of uh, molecular detection uh, for DIV1 has uh, decreased uh, year by year both in farms and samples. The positive uh, farms uh, decreased uh, from 14.7% uh, uh, to 10%. The positive samples uh, uh, decreased from 12.3% uh, to 8.5%. Uh, China published this uh, uh, condition of uh, infection with Gary one in the official report for the annual aquatic animal health in China. Uh, hatcheries and the farms were informed with the scientific findings and uh, prevention strategies. Uh, commercial DIV1 uh, diagnostic kits are also available in China. More and more hatcheries and uh, farms uh, require DIY-free uh, blue stock and uh, post flower. I believe that uh, uh, transparency in DIY research and uh, surveillance uh, in China has greatly contributed to the mitigation of uh, 
DIY one uh, prevalence. Uh, however, uh, the the origin origin uh, origination of DIY is uh, still unknown. Most country have not uh, started the surveillance plan for DIY one or do not report positive cases. Uh, globally, it's unclear if the disease is uh, increasing or in, in geography region. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever we might be greeting you today. Welcome to session eight, the final session of this year's Goal Conference, GAA's first virtual event. My name is James Wright, editor of the Global Aquaculture Advocate, GAA's online magazine, documenting the evolution of responsible aquaculture, and I'll be the host for the time that we have left. All right, I'd like to uh, invite all the panelists to turn on their videos and unmute their microphones. Now I'm going to uh, do a quick little introduction as I see you on my screen. I'm not sure how they display on everyone else's screen, but to my immediate, I guess that's my left, that's Mr. Ohad Maiman of the Kingfish Company joining us from his, uh, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, Amsterdam. Oh, thank you. And on the bottom of the screen from left to right, as I see him, is uh, Alf Goran Knudsen of Quare Arctic joining us from Norway. Hello. Mr. Eric Heim, CEO of uh, Nordic Aquafarms joining us from the beautiful state of Maine, my hometown, my home state. Eric, how are you? I'm uh, doing good, just to correct. I'm president of Nordic Aquafarms Inc. in the US. Oh. Thank you for having us. Oh, my, my apologies. My apologies. And last but not least is Johan Andresen, CEO of Atlantic Sci-Fi from sunny Florida. And we just lost him. <laughs> well, let's get started. So one of the, uh, here was my first question. So. Let's talk about uh, the investments that's happening in, in the uh, land-based aquaculture sector. A lot of investment capital has been poured into the sector for the past two to three years. According to a recent report by our friends at Spheric Research, there are some 60 similar projects uh, worldwide, land-based projects, and 14 in the United States alone. So I ask the group, can this pace be sustained, or do we need to see first uh, start seeing some actual returns from full grow out production systems. So in other words, does RIS and land-based aquaculture in general really need a big success story before it truly takes off? Feel free to jump in, anyone. James, well, um, I frankly think that uh, once a technology is proven technically, taking a, a wait and see approach may be an entertaining spectator sport, but it's a sure way of missing the train. Uh, at this point, there are quite some operators that have spent years by now uh, permitting, designing, building, and learning how to operate systems. Uh, it is important, though, in my view, to look at uh, Russ not as a, as a silver bullet for everything everywhere, but to think of not just the classic product market fit, but product market technology fit. Uh, Russ, in our view, it's best when used for high-value species at import-dependent markets. Mr. Dutzen, RAS has really taken off in Norway. A lot of producers are using it. Can you speak to why um, you wanted to move on land? Your, your company has traditionally been operating in, in the uh, natural ocean environment. Can you talk to us about that, that move? No, for us, it's um, we've been doing sea-based farming for a long time. and. Uh, <laughs> 
And we can see that the challenges the industry has, and, and especially in Norway, it's about uh, the area, the locations, the space uh, left again for doing sustainable farming. If we if we increase uh, the number of sites and, and the number of uh, or the volume of production uh, on uh, on the sea, it's, it's going to be difficult to obtain the, still the sustainable uh, production. So we we see that uh, going on land is uh, is one way of uh, of uh, producing more fish and, and feeding a, a population that needs more food. Uh, uh, and I don't see it as a competition to what we are doing. It's more of taking the knowledge we have and, and bringing not land, on land and, and producing fish uh, the best way possible. And, uh, and for our, we have we have not moved into the RAS technology because we don't have any we don't have any knowledge about it in in house. We have uh, knowledge about how to farm fish on sea based farming, and therefore we are uh, going into the flow through system, which also is a still an unproven uh, uh, technology that needs needs a successor, needs someone to figure out how to do it before we can say it's, uh, it's the future. Now, for those of uh, our attendees who are unfamiliar, when do you think the, this facility might be operational? No, our go we have uh, we have uh, <laughs> goals as everyone else has, and, and our goal is to harvest the first fish in, in uh, 2023. So uh, it's uh, it's reachable goals, but as you know, it's always uh, hard um, getting there. And uh, the other guys around here can maybe know a little bit more than me about just that. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, Eric, Eric uh, uh, your thoughts about the, the growth of this industry, how it's, it's kind of really emerging in the last few years, whereas just maybe five, ten years ago, a lot of investors were hesitant to jump into this space. Yeah, I guess a couple of us here have been had a foot in this industry for a decade or so now, and uh, it, it is an emerging industry, right? And maybe not that different from other type of case examples of emerging industries, but what is you know special about land-based is you have four or five-year development cycles, uh, and so what we're really seeing is that uh, success at moderate scale is driving market interest uh, and their confidence that that success can be scaled uh, to the larger scale that we're seeing right now. And of course, there are some assumptions and risks involved with that, but I think, I think if you've seen in the last two three years, more and more sort of risk issues have been addressed and there's some remaining, but it all comes down to uh, concluding whether the risk is acceptable or will be resolved as we move along, right? So, but I guess the other thing, important thing is not every land-based project is the same. There are big differences between these projects. So that comes back to investors doing their due diligence and exactly what they're thinking about investing into. So, um, so, and that's challenging in a very fast moving market, right? All of our companies are continuously I'm sure, innovating along a number of different work streams, right? And it's tough for investors to keep up with that. So that's the landscape that investors have to navigate in and when they're making decisions. And clearly, all these projects you're referring to, not all of them will happen. Uh, this is also typical in emerging industry. You see a just explosion of interest and then things sort of correct themselves over time. Um, so it's an exciting segment, but uh, you need to tread carefully and. Uh, and those who make the right steps can uh, have great success, I think, as we see new things uh, mature step by step. 
Mr. Andresen, uh, as every journalist is taught not to bury lead, so I wanted to start with you, and uh, you've been making the news quite a bit lately. The world is really watching Atlantic Sapphire's Blue House system in Florida with great interest, and you celebrated a major milestone with your first harvest a couple weeks ago. Big news for your company, but also for RIS in general. So how has this achievement changed things for your company in the way that it's viewed by industry investors and, importantly, seafood buyers? I don't think it has changed much, uh, to be honest with you. Obviously, it's a, it's a, first, it's a massive milestone. Uh, we started the company in 2010 uh, with the aim to produce salmon on land in, in America, right? So, so it's a huge milestone from that perspective. Um, we, we, for us, internally, we knew that we, this, this was, was going to work. So it's, it's not like a big surprise for us. And, and we have been testing the fish, um, sending out samples to customers for, for a long time. But obviously, to see to see the American product uh, in the shelves of high-end U.S. grocers, uh, it, it's a very pleasant feeling, right? So, I think the, the focus um, going forward now is to to make sure that we can deliver um, every week uh, consistently um, uh, and with the right volumes um, and with high quality. And uh, I think the American consumer uh, will get a better product at that that they have ever seen before, just because of the freshness and the, and the consistency of the product. So we're very excited about the, the um, market uh, acceptance of, of this product. Now, as, uh, as several of you have noted already, the technology is proven. It's been producing fish for 20 years or more, but the technology really became a real source of investor, investor interest after large Norwegian companies started growing larger smolts to be stocked in net pens until they were about one pound or 500 grams each. So, but it's a different matter growing fish to full market size indoors. But was that move to give the fish more in more time indoors and less outdoors? Was that a big turning point for the technology? Was that like a prove me proving moment? Yeah, you put it this way. I mean, a small salmon can take much poorer conditions. Okay, uh, if you want to to grow a large fish, uh, it has a different gill to body weight ratio. So the, the gills and the, the, the water quality required for that fish to, to thrive and grow is, is very different from a, a smolt or a post-smolt. So, and in addition to that, obviously, um, to, to have uh, great water quality is important for growth, but it's also very important for the taste uh, of the final product. And uh, our concept is that we are, we are here in, in, in Miami for a reason, and uh, that is because we have uh, unlimited amounts of stable groundwater okay water is the biggest mitigant uh, in these systems um we, we use a quite high amount of water per per, per kilo of feed uh, five five six hundred liters of new water per kilo of feed if you try to go much down to to very higher very much higher recirculation degrees you you get uh, you open a can of worms uh, it's a lot of new issues that arises uh, that we basically don't have to deal with so stable um, amount uh, stable and high amounts of water is, is a very important success factor in, in our view. Oh. It's, it's like, uh, it's like everyone said, one thing is growing a fish uh, 500 gram, but five kilos a uh, completely different uh, thing. That's why RAS technology, it, it's, it's hard and it's, uh, it's um, going to be, uh, yet there's still challenges, but it's, uh, I believe someone will succeed and will succeed uh, uh, growing big volumes. It's uh, 
there are, like you said, a lot of projects and a lot of them are going to fail, but uh, I think there's a lot of them that will succeed and, and there is absolutely room for them. There's, there's room for a growth in salmon uh, uh, in the market uh, in total. So there's, uh, there's not like it's going to be too much of the salmon. In, in Norway, we have the regulations, we have the production is not going to increase because of the sustainability uh, a lot. So, so we, need, we need more fish, we need more salmon to, to feed uh, the population. So it's good. What are the leading factors for success? Obviously, you need the technology, you need money, and you need the right people to operate these systems with the right knowledge. But what else? What, what am I missing? What's what also belongs on that list? I personally think it, it does have to do with the the right fish at the right uh, market. Um, in our view, in some areas with some products, if uh, other technologies do a good, sustainable, and cost-effective job. We look elsewhere for other species, um, but once you have the right the product market technology fit, and then of course the experienced uh, personnel and time. Uh, these projects take some time to design, permit, build, and then uh, quite some effort to get the, the production protocols right. And eventually uh, a system needs to produce what it's meant to produce. Otherwise it throws the whole uh, financial picture out of balance. I guess you can add to that also. We talk about proven technology, um, but the uh, know-how dimension related to implementing that technology when you move into facilities like this on larger scale uh, is a slightly different ballgame. So uh, they are complex projects. So it's just important for anyone looking at this, like investors, that you know it's not off-the-shelf solutions in general uh, for, for companies. And that's why capabilities really matter here uh, as, an, as an important extension of, of these uh, projects. Capabilities that goes across the whole value chain of this kind of an operation. So it's a package that needs to be there, right, that you need to look for. In any case, both the technology and how it's applied, who's applying it, and how are they actually executing these things. And in the end, like uh, Johan is talking about, what, what really matters in the end is a product that consumers uh, want, a high-quality product, right, in the right market. So there's a lot of things to look at when you, when you plan these projects. And one thing also that, you know, clearly, every, when you look at site locations, every site has trade-offs. Um, after looking at sites for 10 years, I've still yet to find the perfect site. So uh, it's important to really understand the drivers behind the site selection that you're working on uh, and that you can actually plan out a project in relation to that in a good way. I think also, uh, one other thing that is important to keep in mind is that we're talking about the RAS here, right? But the RAS component of, for example, our Blue House in Miami, the RAS component is 30 to 40% of the CapEx, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a lot of different trades that needs to be bundled together into an integrated system. Um, and we, we have had more than 50 different companies uh, in, in the project here to deliver certain pieces of the puzzle. So, uh, and there, is no, there are no RAS supplier that can provide a turnkey land-based facility. This is up to the owner, and it's thousands of decisions uh, along the way uh, during the design and construction that you need to deal with. And that, that is those answers you're not going to get from the rest supplier. This is the owners. So the owners and the people in the, in the, the farming company is very key to, um, to creating a good product. 
Yeah, we are talking a lot about RAS, but as uh, Alf is here to attest, there are other forms of land-based aquaculture. Uh, and now, if you're, like I mentioned before, your family-owned company has a long history in Norway's industry, but you're venturing on land and you're going to be going with a flow-through system. Just walk us through that decision and why you went with that. Now, you mentioned you didn't have the in-house knowledge for RAS, but is there a, was there an economic factor involved too? Is, is flow-through system, is that less expensive to construct? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a complex picture for us. It's like I said, the, the in-house technology, but it's also I, uh, I still believe, and I still believe in in using the advantage we have uh, with the water quality and with the water temperature we have in Norway, and uh, and using that to produce more fish. And it's also taking down investment with with the existing logistic we have available here. We have the feed logistic, we have the harvest logistic, we have the small logistic already there. So it's just taking advantage of those things and, and producing a salmon on, on land with, with uh, yeah, with uh, as, as close as possible uh, doing it uh, uh, exactly like we do on sea. Uh, because that is still possible as long as you can collect uh, feces and, and use the feces to produce biogas and all of those things, you will have a, you will have a sustainable uh, farm on land uh, doing that. And we have, uh, yeah, we have that. Uh, at us, it's not, it has not been how much it's going to cost to do the investment. That has not been important to us. I have, I watched and, and been presented a lot of the land-based project for us technology, but I, I don't have that. I don't have that believe in, in the RAS technology that uh, others have. I, I believe that someone will succeed, but jumping on, I have not yet met the right group of uh, investors and other people in that uh, RAS technology farm that I would jump on immediately. So it's uh, more than, it was the project we are on, it's, it's close to where we are. It can be, we can manage it through our systems. We can make it a part of uh, our uh, yeah, logistics. So that's been important for us. Great. So several of, of the panelists here are in actively building their facilities or going through the process of obtaining the necessary permits. Eric, can you just give us an update on how the construction project and the plans are, are going along for Nordic Aqua Farms in Maine? And, and also, you have a facility in Norway that you're trying to basically replicate in Maine. Just talk to, to us about that. Well, we have three farms in the Nordic countries. Uh, Salmon farm in Norway, and uh, like Ohad here, we produce kingfish in Denmark. So um, those operations have been uh, going on for a while and selling product in the European market. Uh, we started permitting a little bit over two years ago uh, in Maine uh, and engineering. Uh, it's been a quite large undertaking on a 54-acre campus. Uh, right now, we are in the process of receiving the final uh, outstanding permits, so we expect to wrap up within a few weeks. And based upon that, we are essentially ready to go in Maine uh, at this time. Uh, we just want to make sure we have all our ducks lined up 100% when heading into a project of this scale. So, and same with basically California, is, uh, we are expecting permits next summer. So we'll see a phase development on both coastlines in the coming years uh, from our from our direction. Ohad, uh, the same question to you. You have also have a, a farm in the works uh, a little bit further east in Maine in Jonesport. It's a yellowtail farm, if I'm 
speaking yeah. correctly, okay. And uh, there's some relevant timelines that lay ahead for you. I see that just last week, you got a uh, permit for intake and discharge pipes. So just give us the latest on this project and whether you're still on track to break ground at, at the, I think it's next year. Uh, yeah, the plan is still on track to start construction second half of next year. Uh, what we found quite useful was the pre-submission discussions, both with the relevant regulators and with the local community of stakeholders. So with, um, with the regulators, we have been able to share our discharge intake, particularly the, the discharge makeup from our operation in the Netherlands, and we were uh, comfortable early on that it is within the guidelines of state and federal regulations. The second part was as important for us as well, to find a community that wants us there. Um, I do understand the, the concern of uh, a commercial operation uh, potentially affecting uh, the, the water locally. So it was important for us to, to listen to the concerns, to make some adjustments in our design pre-submission uh, accordingly. And I one of the, the major points that eventually we managed to explain was that um, unlike some of the fears we we were that were voiced to us about the types of operations that make a mess and move on, uh, a RAS farm cannot just up and leave. It is a very substantial and quite a long-term investment. And in most cases, or at least uh, in our case, we, we intake from the same place that we discharge. So uh, making a mess of the area is not just wrong in other levels, it also would be against uh, the interest of the company. And yet that was really my next question was about the work it takes to gain social license or the trust and will, um, goodwill of the community in which you operate. Now there's um, a number of different plans, uh, land-based farms plan for Maine. They all seem to be progressing at different rates, but if you could just, uh, you know, Eric and Noha, just talk to us you quickly about what the experience has been like in convincing your new neighbors that your businesses are, in fact, environmental schools. Oh, I, think, I can go. Yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah, we've been basically working five sites internationally at different points in time. Right now we're working California and Maine. Um, I think, you know, uh, like Ohad is saying, uh, the important thing is really to go in uh, being transparent uh, and also, like we've done, have an open-door policy locally, uh, public meetings and uh, frequent communications. But every community is different. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen that in Maine. Uh, what was important for us to have was to have a central location, um, partially due to the importance of recruiting talent and attracting them to an area that's that's uh, good to bring their families, right? That potentially brings you into some more conflict level in some areas. And we see some, we've seen some pockets of that in Maine, and uh, it's uh, at times been quite challenging. Uh, interestingly enough, in California, there's been nothing of that. So it really just every, it tells you that every community is different, even though you're doing the same thing, right? So, <laughs> so but I think, you know, in the end, for any player, um, it comes down to open and transparent communications in the community. Um, every community will have different challenges, and that goes for different industries as well, whether you're windmills or power lines or solar parks. There are you know, examples of conflicts with all these kind of projects, depending on where you are. So um, in, in the end, for us, we have a long-term perspective in all locations. So if there's, sometimes there's a little bit more uh, friction, uh, and that's just a part of the game uh, that you end up with dealing with in some locations. Um, 
And that's uh, that's what I think uh, any player should be prepared for. Sometimes you uh, get off easy, other times it's harder work. That's how it is. Oh, had any other thoughts on that and how the um, the process has been going and working with the community of Jonesport? I think it was uh, for us as much of an effort uh, in reaching out to the community, arranging uh, town hall meetings, meeting the local fishermen, and learning quite some surprising concerns that uh, we were able to mitigate. Uh, uh, an example, or intuitively, we thought they would uh, like our discharge pipe to be as long and as far away as possible, but it turned out that that would interfere with some dredging of scallops locally. So we added filtration and shortened the pipe. Uh, and that, that's very important wherever you operate in whatever capacity to uh, to be a, a good neighbor. Alf, I'd like to ask you the, kind of the same question. It doesn't seem uh, that gaining social license is the same proposition in Norway as it is in Maine, but is that a fair assumption that it's maybe easier to get a project done involving aquaculture in Norway? I know maybe you don't have the first-hand experience of what it's like to build in the United States, but what are your thoughts on that? No, it's not, uh, even in Norway, it's not an easy process. It's, uh, you have, uh, even we have uh, industrial neighbors that we have to uh, sit down with and, and talk through everything and explain them because they don't, they normally don't see the size of this and, and uh, the, yeah, what it's going to affect uh, the area around them. So it's uh, it's difficult to picture all of that and, and to take it down. And also the bureaucracy in Norway is uh, Quite hard. It took uh, it took took us three years just to get the license uh, from when we started uh, uh, looking into it and, and getting the license in Norway. We need that uh, that license and that license is given out, but it's not an easy process to get that license. So it's uh, even all all the NGOs will want everything on land in Norway. I think they will be blown away if they see when they see the size of just one farm that will be producing only ten thousand metric tons. So taking all on land would be hard, yeah. Johan, you, you've built your facility in a much larger metro area than we have anywhere in Maine. So but is, is this an advantage to construct in a, in, a, in a larger city with larger, more established industrialized zones than it is in a, a rural area like Maine? Yeah, I think that's very, very, um, a very large uh, advantage. I mean, we, we, we should not forget that these uh, infrastructures are very large, okay? Um, we, we have had thousands of dump trucks of, of concrete coming in, for example. Right? And uh, just the, the, the fact that you have all kinds of companies in the city here that you can draw, draw on, and the electrical companies and, and so forth, it's, it's a very big uh, big advantage. And it's also a very big advantage when it comes to our own recruiting, right? We, um, we live in, a, in an urban area with 6 million people uh, within one and a half hours of, of driving driver's distance. Uh, we have multiple universities. University of Miami has one of the most advanced aquaculture uh, schools in the country. So I think it's a big advantage to be near a, a, a big city. Uh, and also, obviously, the, the out logistics from the farm, when we harvest the fish, uh, is also very important. And uh, Miami, being the hub of the Chilean uh, salmon industry, uh, has very, very good logistic uh, channels through, through, through the entire continent. So. Uh, I think that's, that's very important. Um, power is also very important, stable power, cheap power. Um, we, 
in Florida, we have very stable pricing of, uh, of power. FPNL, it's a monopoly, and they're uh, basically providing stable prices and stable power uh, year round. So, um, to be close to civilization uh, is, is, for many, many reasons, uh, uh, a big advantage. Okay, so in the interest of time, I'm just going to ask one last question. I have a few, lots of things I wanted to address, uh, but um, I also want to leave time for a couple of audience questions, too. So, um, so this is a question about farming fish in the United States. Is land-based aquaculture the only way that the United States will significantly increase production and consumption of fresh farm fish? There's a lot of uncertainty regarding regulations and near-shore waters. And it just seems like the U.S. is not going to compete with Norway and Chile anytime soon. So is RAS or maybe some other form of land-based aquaculture the only way forward in the United States? Your thoughts, Eric? Uh, I certainly hope that the U.S. has an opportunity to diversify its seafood uh, sector. Uh, it will create a more resilient seafood economy. But it's also a challenging market. It has a challenging history in terms of the regulation in the U.S. and also some public opinion issues. And, you know... We've seen now, you know, a push to open up offshore production in the U.S. Um, I think it's worth, you know, seeing how, how that will go. Uh, it's not without challenges, for sure. Uh, so, um, so it's 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 a very different market than, for example, Norway uh, uh, in terms of both knowledge level, uh, many places, and also the complexities of the regulatory systems when you start moving out to the oceans. So I think, you know, nothing is certain here. Uh, I think land-based has a clearer path to uh, expanding in the U.S., and we'll just have to wait and see how the landscape opens for other options. But all in all, it would be positive for the U.S. to be able to diversify its industry. All right, I hope you enjoyed this little taste of the Goal 2020 virtual conference. This is just a very, very tiny sample of the content that we have available to all of our members. So like I said in the beginning, if you are a member, make sure you check out the link in our show notes so you can go back and view all of this. I mean, this content goes, there's 15 hours of content in there. There's a lot and a lot of content that's available to you if you are a member. If you're not a member and you would like to learn how you can get access to all of this footage, Make sure you check out that link in the show notes or reach out to us podcast at aquaculturealliance.org and we'll help you get signed up and get ready so you can become a member and be able to consume all of this awesome content from Goal 2020 Virtual Conference. Thank you again so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.